Welcome to Malpractice Podcast. So are you ready to get started? Why, yes I am. <laughs> well, back for round two. Back for round two. Of the flu episode, and then also, I think I fixed my audio, everyone, with the help of the internet in Sydney. Yeah, no, I didn't do anything. Occasionally we do have... Well, you were here for support. <laughs> emotional support, yeah. You supported me. We occasionally yeah. have technical difficulties. And frankly, I don't know how to fix many things, so I just go to Google, the trusty source of all information. As you should. What... What we were discussing right before we started recording is what did people do in a pre-internet time? Mm-mm. I couldn't tell you. Don't want to be there. Same. Oh, I'm Sydney. And I'm Jess. <laughs> and this is Malpractice Podcast. And we love the internet. <laughs> Honestly, bless up to the internet. Yeah. The other thing about this internet age is that some people who record podcasts will occasionally have premium content or something where they show you a video of them doing the recording. And that will never be us. <laughs> Today I'm more thankful than ever that that is not us because I showed up looking like a straight-up goblin. And I disagree because Sydney looks really cute. She looks the same. No, I look like a goblin. No. I have no makeup on. No. It's goblin-esque. I, I can't tell that you don't have makeup on. My eyebrows, I look like an alien. I can see them. Have you ever seen those pictures where they crop out celebrities' eyebrows and they're like, look how stupid they look. Everybody looks stupid without <laughs> eyebrows. No, I've never seen that. If That's you have light-colored eyebrows, you need to be filling them in. Let me tell oh, you. Oh, I fill mine in. <laughs> of course you do. I, I dye mine because they're a blonde. What else? What are we going to talk about? We're going to shout out Southwest Airlines. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. So my dad wanted me to shout out Southwest Airlines because when we were coming back, did from he our really trip, ask you to shout out? He literally told me, <laughs> he was like, I don't know what you do, like write them a good review or whatever. And I was like, I guess we could shout them out on the podcast. <laughs> I personally find Southwest, their no seating number policy, mm -hmm. I find it to be chaotic and stressful. Yeah, I don't love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. I don't. I do not like it. I don't like going into a situation not knowing where I'm supposed to sit. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> that really stresses me out. It stresses me out so much. And then people on the plane are like trying to prevent you from sitting. Like, I don't want people to sit next to me if I can avoid it. Yeah. So, you know, people are doing their best to look sketchy and they're like, don't sit next to me. I don't know. Anyway, I find it a little stressful. Mm -hmm. What I will say is before we got on our flight on Sunday, my dad had thrown out his back and yeah. he required the use of a wheelchair. Yeah. Like it was a bad back injury. And Southwest made everything... I mean, I've never traveled with someone who was in a wheelchair before. This was my first experience with that on an airline. Yeah. And it is so stressful and chaotic because people are so... They're just in a rush to get wherever they're going. They kind of treat someone in a wheelchair like an obstacle. This is the first time I've ever been on kind of the receiving end of that. Yeah. It was... And no one cares about you. No. No. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. They for sure don't. Uh, Southwest, I will say, if if you need wheelchair assistance, they make it incredibly easy to request a wheelchair and someone to take you to and from your gates. That's cool. And they made it so easy 
I legitimately think I would have had a mental breakdown without the help of the Southwest people. <laughs> well, that track. Yeah. So they were great with with him. What did they do about seating for him? They let him. Uh, so Southwest does like priority seating for people who have young children mm-hmm. and people who are um, in a wheelchair. They oh, get that's good. Sort of priority access boarding. So he was like the first person on our plane. Nice. When our flight landed, we had a connecting flight. They had somebody waiting at the gate to assist him as soon as he got off the plane. It was really, like, seamless as it could be. Wow, that's big praise. I never say nice things about, like, an airline. Yeah, who does? I'm not the type. Yeah. But they made a very stressful situation much less stressful. So shout out to Southwest, even though your seating policy is bonkers. Yeah, it is. I I have actually... Like, never flown Southwest because of that reason. I don't disagree, but here's the thing. They did such a good job, and they handled my dad's situation so well that I will go out of my way to fly Southwest again. That's so nice. Yeah. So, shout out to them, honestly. That's all I wanted to say. Are you the type of person who picks your seat, like, pays to pick your seat? Surely you know that I am. Okay. I did that this morning. We're flying... (laughs) We're going to Las Vegas. Right. And um, tomorrow. And this morning I like checked us in. And then we, you know, just we got great tickets. So we yeah. were like group number nine of nine. Right. To board and stuff. So I was like, oh, I'm buying. I'm buying our seats. Like, I don't care how much they cost. Yeah. And I love, I have anxiety if I'm by the window. You do? Because I'm going to need to pee. Oh, same. yeah. Yeah. I'm an aisle sitter. La- yeah, me too. <laughs> and I only sit on the aisle or I sit in the middle Mm -hmm. if Michelle's sitting on the aisle so I can bother her. And that's it. Right. That's the only option. I don't love a window seat and Eric will get into a window seat and fall asleep and it does not matter how long the flight is. He will stay asleep for the duration of the flight. That's crazy to me. They come around with snacks, they come around with drinks and he's like just get me one if they come around but otherwise don't disturb me. And he will stay asleep the entire time. I cannot sleep. Mm Mm-mm. I can't believe that. No. I don't sleep on planes. I might doze, like my head might bob, you know, but I'm not sleeping on a plane because I'm like, what if something happens and I'm asleep and Eric's, you know, he's asleep. He's asleep. Yeah. One of us has to be awake. I do the whole, oh, I'm falling asleep. And then because I'm manic, my head jerks and I'm like, ah, <laughs> panic. <laughs> What's going Same. on? And it's never anything. Right. I'm like, we're going down. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't like it. So I'll... No, I'm... I'll be I'm not a plane sleeper. Yeah, I'll be awake. Same. A middle seat is objectively the worst. We can all Uh, agree with that. Yeah, facts. Yeah, yeah. Because if there are... I'm sorry to say this. If there are two men on either side of you, they're going to manspread into your space. Oh, yeah. Like, their leg will touch you. But you know what I do? (laughs) I I put my legs crazy wide. (laughs) Before they get there. If I'm there first, I'm like, do You're it. Like, try try me. Touch my leg, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm just going to be really obnoxious. I've had a man put, you know how the seat in front of you has like the section where your legs clearly are supposed to go. Mm-hmm. He put his leg in my leg spreading out section. What? It's crazy. The level of man spreading. What did you do? I waited until he fell asleep. This is how crazy I am. No, I hooked my foot around the bottom of his foot, mm-hmm. pulled his foot back, and then put it in his section. I would have kicked the shit out of him. Probably I considered it. The armrest thing. Just put two armrests. It is. Why is there one armrest? It immediately everyone hates it. They hate it, and it's such an awkward situation because if you need arm space, which like 
if you're broad shouldered, you, you do need a little arm space, right? Mm-hmm. Well, everybody wants arm space. Let's be clear. Right, you want it. Why is there only one? Now I got to fight the guy next to me for arm space. Now, not only is he spreading his legs like a freak, mm-hmm. but now he put his arm there. Well, I put my arm there too. Oh yeah. So now we both have our arms. Now our arms are touching and our legs are touching. If you think I won't awkwardly touch your arm because it's overspread into my zone, you're wrong. Because I'll do it. Oh, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll do I'll just it like too. slowly creep my arm, like, eh, and now we're touching. Now we're touching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like chicken. It is. You want to touch arms? Do you? Do you? No, I don't. I don't like an arm toucher. I don't like also a person who's okay with both of our arms just sitting there touching. Yeah. Then I'll withdraw it because I'm I'm not playing that game of chicken. Yeah. Once once we get to that point, I know you've won. Right. Like I don't want to do that. I can't I can't be a part of it. But the leg thing, I'll I'll stay. I'll fight over the leg thing for sure. The arm thing, I'm like whatever. I'll just lean on this one. But normally, are you a plane talker? Like a talking to people that are on the plane? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like if you sit not anymore not since covid i'm still a plain talker i'm not gonna lie i'll i'll be best friends with the people next to me by the time i land mm. we got off the flight this flight recently and uh this guy gave me a box of candy because he's like hey you've never tried this here try it uh let me know what you think or whatever stranger danger sydney as we were getting off the plane and eric was like I have never in my life had a stranger hand me a box of candy. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, because on? you're unapproachable, you have to be more approachable. He went to sleep. Right. Eric went to Eric sleep. Eric went to sleep, so no one gets to know Eric on the plane. No. Because he's immediately dead to the world. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm up and anxious, and I'm like, hi, yeah. I'm Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eyes big. Right. Where are you going? The last time I was on a flight, I literally bought a piece of art from the girl next to me. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I don't know. I just can't help it. That's fun, though. You're, like, a good time. Yeah, I'm like, do you have an Instagram? <laughs> and you bought something? Yeah. You're so friendly. I saw her board the plane with two pieces of art, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Are you an artist? You must be, right? Mm. And she was like, yeah. And we started talking about her art business, blah, blah, blah. That's so... That's so Sydney. <laughs> I'll while out and become friends with anybody on a plane. I could talk to a lamppost. Yeah. And I think that that's directly the result of being raised by my mother. That is your mom. That's 100%. Your mom will get off Correct. the plane with a new job. <laughs> oh, yeah. She'll make a best friend on the plane. She, she's like, yeah. anyway, now we're going on vacation together, me and this guy. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, literally, we're going skiing. You can come if you want. Right. Come or don't. Whatever. I'm like, that man's a serial killer. You don't know him. <laughs> you don't know him. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm not that level quite but but you're you know. getting candy from strangers like you're pretty close <laughs> it's, pretty it's like close. a trickle down friendliness like my mom if i were less anxious i'd probably be as friendly as my mom but mm-hmm. i'm like this person's gonna murder me in my sleep so mm-hmm. you know yeah that's a healthy level of fear i, I feel believe. that way <laughs> i do too but i like love fear it keeps me safe <laughs> fear is evolutionarily necessary it's good it's a good yeah. one yeah I'm, fear of I'm tigers Fear of the person uh, on the plane next to you. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, I'm ready. Let's uh, let's do this. Okay, I'm excited. Okay, so we're gonna jump into part two of our two-parter on the 1918 influenza pandemic that ended in 1920. Um, quick recap from last week. If you didn't listen and you are wild and you just jump into the second part of a two-part situation, because you don't have anxiety or what? Yeah, I don't know. Don't know you, but. Love that for you. Right. This flu was known to many as the Spanish flu or the great influenza epidemic. 
incorrectly labeled as Spanish flu. I'm not going to get into that. We already talked about it. We went into it in great detail last week. Please see my opinions. Yeah. And wherefore Spanish. And where... Did you see I put that in the post? Yeah, I did. It's <laughs> my favorite thing ever. And wherefore Spanish. Um, yeah. Anyway, it was a massive pandemic caused by the H1N1 influenza flu virus. Um, the earliest documented case occurred in March of 1918 in Kansas, U.S., so it should be called the Can- Kansas flu. Again, see last week. Yeah. And other cases started popping up shortly afterwards in France, Germany, and the U.K. In April, Sydney did a great job of explaining why with, like, World War One ending, but people were still moving around and, and troops were, like, trading mm-hmm. diseases, which is disgusting, but true. Truly. Um, two years later, almost a third of the global population, about 500 million people, had been infected by this virus. Mm-hmm. And it's estimated anywhere from 20 million to, like, 100 million people have died, making this one of the most deadly pandemics. There were four total waves, um, the first being more mild and um, actually providing the older generation some exposure that protected them from the other waves. Yeah. The second wave was much more deadly, and the flu eventually targeted the, uh, that was a hard word for me, targeted (laughs) the younger, healthier population, decreasing the average life expectancy in the U.S. by 12 years, which is nuts. Yeah. And now you're pretty much caught up. Yeah. Big summary. That's a big takeaway. There was a fourth wave of the flu we didn't cover last week, but it subsided pretty quickly after reaching its, uh, like, a peak in February of 1920. However, Mm -hmm. there were still significant death statistics. New York had about 6,300 reported. Hawaii actually experienced its peak of the pandemic in early 1920, recording about 1,489 deaths from flu-related causes. So the fourth wave continued into the end of 1920, but it was less in- intense yeah. than the other waves. So it's dying down. People are getting exposed and then have the antibodies, etc. Right. So they're recovering from it instead of dying from it. Dying, right. In our last episode, we finished up by telling y'all about each of the four waves, what the flu actually looked like in terms of symptomology, because it came with some very serious and gruesome symptoms. Mm -hmm. Just as a quick reminder, I'm so sorry for what is about to get pretty gross very early on in an episode. People who were infected during the second wave had symptoms way beyond what we think of as typical flu symptoms, and those included bleeding from their mouths, noses, and ears. Anytime you're bleeding from your ears, Mm -hmm. it's not good. No, 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 no. That's... No. Shit is going seriously wrong if your ears are bleeding. That's just a rule of thumb. Yeah. If your ears are bleeding, take it from a PhD. (laughs) It's a no. (laughs) That's no good, yeah. That, in my professional opinion, that's a not a good sign. That's a not a good, yeah. No. And there's the pneumonia that also came alongside this particular flu virus. So lots of people were suffering from secondary bacterial infections, which were actually causing the flu virus to be misdiagnosed by lots of healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. Microscopes at the time weren't actually strong enough to see viral particles. So they would take patient samples and check them out like a pathologist would go look at them under a microscope. They would see bacteria in the patient's saliva and they would think, okay, that's that's bacteria, right? That's what's causing this. Mm-hmm. Health historians now actually think they've identified that bacterium as hemophilus influenzae. So they start treating patients with antibiotics like penicillin, which 
because it's a virus, you know, in a post-COVID world, basically everyone knows you can't treat a virus with antibiotics. But the penicillin treatment did actually work to lower the overall death rate because it reduced secondary infections. Mm. But again, you're you're reducing the rate of, of secondary infections that cause pneumonia, which was one of the leading causes of death. But again, you can't treat the actual virus with antibiotics. You also can't treat viruses with antiparasitic me- medication that's used to uh, treat parasites in livestock. But that's just... That's just me not trying to get overly political here. That's none of our business, Whoop. but it was some people's business recently. I mean, don't take medication for, for livestock. I don't know. If you're not a cow, <laughs> it's not for you. If you are a cow, how did you get access to this podcast? Yeah, and why are you listening and understanding <laughs> us? <laughs> Thank you to our cow audience. Okay. Doctors at the time were... They had no idea what this was, right? They were afraid it was maybe the plague or typhus or cholera, all of which had been bacterial infections that have collectively killed millions and millions of people, but none of them were to blame for this particular pandemic. You know what always shocks me? When people want to go back in time. Bitch, have you heard of the Black Plague? When someone asked me, like, what what, um, time period would you want to be born in? Bitch, I barely have rights now. This one? (laughs) (laughs) This one is the only one. This is the future? (laughs) Is that an option? Can I go forward and see what's up? I can go back to a time when I might die of the Black Plague. Like, one out of three odds, right? And I have to shit in a bucket. Yeah, I'm not into it. Or now. I'd be burned at the stake. (laughs) I'm not here for that. Correct. Same. And if you wouldn't have been burned at the stake, you're not a fun person. That's true. You know. So, anyway. Oh, reading the stories about the 1918 pandemic, I'm out. Um, Yeah. Anyway, I just had to say that. Because absolutely never. I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you. And don't ask me that question. Good (laughs) day. Uh, Jess mentioned something a second ago during her recap that I want to get into next, which is the fact that this particular flu virus was especially deadly to young, healthy people that are usually safe from this kind of illness. We talked a little bit about this last time, but people between the ages of 20 to 40 were dying of this flu at an unprecedented rate, including millions of the soldiers fighting in World War One. Nearly half of the people who died during this pandemic belonged to that age group. And by the end of the pandemic, more U.S. soldiers would die from the flu than in combat. That's crazy. Isn't it? A whole generation of young men had been decimated by artillery, weaponized gas, machine gun fire. And those who survived were likely to die because of a single droplet of saliva. When soldiers would die of the flu, it would just sometimes be listed as, like, killed in action or, or killed what, however. Dead. Yeah. So the family gets a body back. They don't know how the person passed away, right? Yeah. Uh, so epidemiologists have this thing called a death curve, and it's normally in flu cases U-shaped. Mm-hmm. So it's high in the very young and very old. So it's shaped like a U because the middle is low. Mm-hmm. This one was instead shaped like a W. So it's like the very old the very young, and then in the middle, there's a separate spike for this, like, 20 to 40 age range. That's crazy. That was the highest spike. So, like, everybody thinks. Everybody <laughs> could catch this flu. Mm-hmm. As of 2005, scientists have been able to actually fully sequence the genome of this H1N1 flu virus from 1918. We'll talk more about how they did that later because it's really cool. And what's strange is that nothing about its genetic code has actually been able to explain this like age preference, but they have some theories about it. 
They originally suggested that it may be because people in this age range have a very healthy, active immune system, which may have resulted in the overactivation of something called a cytokine storm. Just to break that down a little bit, Mm. when your body encounters a pathogen or foreign body like a virus, its immune cells release chemical factors called cytokines, which basically act in your body as a signal that something is wrong, which includes inflammation. So like when you get a splinter or cut, the skin around it gets warm and red. Mm. That's the result of inflammation. And that's your body saying something is wrong. We need to get some immune cells over here to react to this. Exactly. Something's going on here. Cytokine storms happen when your healthy immune system responds to a virus by releasing lots of cytokines all at once, which can ultimately result in multi-system organ failure and even death. So a cytokine storm is not a good thing. It's like your immune system is overactive. Yeah, your immune system is like, gotta fix everything and in fact fixes nothing. Exactly. But all of that doesn't really explain why it would kill so many people between the ages of 20 to 40 and spare younger people in their teens who would have equally active immune systems. Right. That led evolutionary biologist Michael Warbay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Michael. (laughs) Um, From the University of Arizona to suggest that it probably had more to do with the viruses that people encountered as children, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. During this particular pandemic, people born after 19... Uh, nope, 1889, wow, <laughs> had never encountered a strain like the so-called Spanish flu, which may have made them more vulnerable when it came around. Michael said, and his colleagues, like, hypothesized that exposure to a certain viral strain as a child could protect you from related viruses in the future. Basically, your immune system does what they call imprinting on the first flu virus you're exposed to, and then it's like, kind of just ready to kind of attack it. The next one. If you get exactly. the next one, yeah. In the 1918 pandemic, the older population had been exposed to a milder but related virus called the Russian flu. Hopefully that really originated in Russia. Who can say for sure? Um, in 1890, which may have given them some of that partial immunity. Right. Despite the fact that this was literally the most devastating pandemic to maybe ever hit humankind... It was kind of overshadowed by World War One and the events that took place afterward. Like, I don't remember ever learning in school about this particular pandemic. And it, like, one third of the population got this flu. So that's crazy, right? Yeah. Some historians, because of that, literally call the flu outbreak of 1918 the forgotten pandemic. And whether that's because of limited media coverage, we've talked about the fact that there was wartime censorship, so people were not reporting the rate of deaths. It was called the Spanish flu, but that was only because Spain, which was not at war, allowed the press to report on it openly, unlike here. Or because the worst of it really only lasted for about nine months total, so it kind of came in swept through the population, and then was basically gone in nine months. I mean, then it went back down to normal flu rates, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy to me, and I think to Jess as well, that the public doesn't know more about this. So we're going to tell you some of the stories that that we read about that you should probably already know, but probably don't. Yeah, and we're starting with the doozy. Oh, yeah. I... I came across this. I think I sent. I think I came across it on History TikTok. Thanks, History, um, and thanks TikTok. <laughs> and I sent it to Sydney, and I was like, "What the fuck? This is, is this? not real." Um, yeah. And it's very real. It's very disgusting. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple like stories. What I like to label this one as like a sick 
disgusting bonus fact about Correct. the naval prison experiment that happened as a result of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So following this pandemic, there was an experiment at the Naval Training Station on Deer Island in Boston Harbor. Dr. M.J. Rosenow and Navy Second Lieutenant J.J. Keegan led the charge. Both of them trash assholes. Yeah. There were sailors in the Navy's jail who were offered amnesty from their prison sentences if they agreed to take part in a disease experiment. Mm -mm. Couldn't be me. Let's just put this in Jess and Sydney terms. These two people go to a prison Uh and they say, if you take part in this experiment about, you know, from a disease that people just died from, we'll just like waive your prison sentence. It depends on how long I'm in for, honestly. Well, these people were like, sign me up. If you're there for life, I feel like maybe I would be like, yeah, let's talk about it. If you're there for like three weeks, no thank you. So I'll just there wait. were about 300 prisoners who volunteered. 62 were selected. And of those volunteers, 39 did not have a history of being infected with the flu. So they had like kind of a control group and not control group. Right. If they survived, they were like, you'll get a pardon. And so people were like, dope. However, not dope. Disgusting. (laughs) Prisoners would go through a series of tests to determine how the flu spreads. They were sprayed in the... Mm. Trigger warning. This is disgusting. So if you don't like disgusting stuff... Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah. Fast forward. Yeah. They were sprayed in the eyes, nose, and mouth Mm -mm. with infected aerosols. After that disgusting experience, they were in injected with infected lung tissue from dead patients. Uh-uh. How safe do you think that is? I mean, really. Also, sometimes with these old medical experiments, I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? The MJ and JJ. MJ and JJ. Clowns. Clowns. So this isn't the end of what would happen to them. Then they would uh, have their throats swabbed with discharges from the sick and dying. Discharge is the most disgusting word I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, disgusting. And then they would have to sit open mouthed while a sick patient coughed in their faces, Mm-mm. which also, low key, what the fuck, sick patient? No, it's not good. Cover your mouth. Cover your mouth when I you cough. I wouldn't want to do that. So some of the patients reported having mucus from infected people put into their eyes. And their throat and nose directly. I can't tell if I'm more disgusted by the word discharge or mucus, but they're both pretty bad. I, 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 I don't know. Thinking about having someone else's mucus. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> oh, he's so sick. <laughs> um, they were also taken to the hospital where people died of the flu to stand over the sick and dying, bend over their faces, and take a deep breath while the person exhaled. Mm-mm. Y'all, I know that hearing this, we're all like, what the hell is going on? That's disgusting. I have to wave away. It is. I'm waving away the, the visuals that I have. Yeah, erase them. Um, it's so sick to offer freedom to prisoners if they survive an experiment in which they really have no consent, right? You're right. In prison. I mean, and then do you, the experiment, they do everything possible to make them sick and die. I, this is so in line with everything we hate about power dynamics yeah. in medical situations. Anyway, after all that bullshit... That they went through, none of the prisoners got sick. How is that possible? The hypothesis is that the um, epidemic actually already passed through oh. the prison a few weeks before, and people were had like a natural yeah, immunity because they were already exposed. The only person who died, mm-hmm. or who was sick um, and then died, was the warden doctor. I mean, if you're participating in this, bye bye. 
Yeah, I just love that that those 62 prisoners, they got released. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe none of them got sick. That's wild. And the experiment ended with nothing learned. There was no new information because no one got sick. <laughs> so, right. So it was a big flop. Right. Agreed. So they learned nothing, no new information. But what did we actually learn collectively from this pandemic? Because the answer is actually quite a bit. The level of severity and high death rates led researchers to wonder why was this particular flu season so deadly as compared to others? Um, Because we know a lot now after having the flu basically sweep through the population every year, Mm -hmm. we know a lot about the flu, but this one was really bad. Despite the fact that it was fairly well documented at the time, all they had was basically epidemiological evidence. They knew very roughly how many people died. I mean, you heard Jess say the stat anywhere from 20 to 100 million. So they had some epidemiological data, but lots of countries just weren't keeping that information. They had almost nothing to go off of in terms of what had actually killed these people. Mm -hmm. In a sort of bittersweet twist, people started to hear about this Alaskan Inuit village called Brevig Mission, which today is home to about 400 people. The town is so small and isolated that there are actually no roads to get there. You have to fly a plane into Brevig Mission to land there. Don't go there. You're going to expose these people to all sorts of shit. Right. So they're very, very isolated. But... In 1918, when the Spanish flu hit this tiny town, over the course of five days, it would claim the lives of 72 out of the 80 residents who lived there. Oh, my God. The local government, basically no one would touch these bodies. Everybody was like, we don't know what this is. Right. Nobody wanted to touch them. So they hired miners from out of town to basically come put these bodies in mass graves. The local government did. Mm Mm-hmm. This town is, at the time especially, and I think this is still the case, it's almost entirely an Inuit town. They hired people to come in and put these bodies in a mass grave. It was covered in permafrost, and it was left almost entirely untouched until 1951. So, in 1951, Johan Holten, who is a 25-year-old Swedish microbiologist and a PhD student at the University of Iowa heard about this town, and set out on an expedition to Brevig Mission in the hopes of finding a sample of the 1918 virus. Like a true non-asshole, he got permission from the Inuit village elders to break through the permafrost and dig up the remains of some of those that had been claimed by the pandemic. The excavation took two days, and Holton had to create campfires to thaw the earth enough to allow for digging. Two days in, he came across the body of a little girl. Her body was still preserved, wearing a blue dress, and her hair was adorned with red ribbons. They literally just came in and basically put these people all together in a mass grave. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Holton and his team successfully obtained lung tissue from four additional bodies buried at the site. But what science was at the time, he was unsuccessful in characterizing the virus on his first attempt. It wasn't until 46 years later, in 1997, that he would have another opportunity to pursue the virus that had killed so many people in 1918. Wow, he is dedicated. He is so dedicated. So that year, he came across an article in the journal Science, authored by Jeffrey Taubenberger and his colleagues, entitled, quote, Initial Genetic Characterization of the 1918 Spanish Influenza Virus. They had actually started to sequence the genome of the virus, which is super exciting. And after reading that article, he called up Jeffrey and he's like, hey, 
if you had, for instance, some really well-preserved lung tissue from this Inuit village, like, they, part of the reason that this matters so much is, number one, they've been frozen this entire time. Yeah, preserved. Really well-preserved. And number two, because it killed 72 out of the 80 people who lived there, you know exactly what they died from. There's no, Mm -hmm. there's no question about it, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey is like, hell yeah, that sounds great. Can you do that for us? And uh, this guy, Holton, goes back at the age of 72. He got permission again from the village elders of this Inuit community. He completed another dig, and he found a perfectly preserved pair of lungs from a 20-year-old Inuit woman who had died of the flu in 1918. This and the tissue from two other sets of lungs would be used in the first ever characterization of the 1918 flu viruses, hemagglutinin A or HA gene. They later learned that the HA surface protein is what allows the influenza virus to enter and infect a healthy respiratory tract cell. So it's a big part of what made the virus so virulent when it kind of swept through the population. Uh, they named this this body of this 20-year-old woman who they were able to uh, dig up. They named her Lucy. And the authors were able to sequence the entire code of the 1918 virus's uh, genome from the virus sample that they obtained from Lucy's body. And Halton, at the age of 72, was listed as a co-author all those years later. Aww. Which kind of gives me chills. Good job, man. The next part gives me, like like a full body chill. He also credited the Inuit elders. He says, quote, the only sample we found was there because the elders of the Brevik mission let me go back into the grave again. He said this in a 1998 interview uh, for a magazine from San Francisco, quote, they gave us the opportunity to do something good, not just for themselves, but for the whole world. That's good. In 2005, a team of scientists finally completed the project, sequencing the full genome of the viral RNA. Since then, they've discovered it was likely avian in origin, meaning it was zoonotic and probably jumped from birds to people. And then last year, a research team from Germany was able to uncover the mutation that occurred between the first and the second wave that made the second wave so deadly. So lots of science. This work gave lots to the scientific community, and it's doing a lot moving forward to teach us about the flu and how we can stop mm-hmm. flu viruses that are so deadly from from mutating into something even worse. Yeah. Everybody involved in that story gets an A-plus from me. A-plus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for that story, not mine. No, Boo. for sure. The last thing we want to talk about is the people who are all too often the unsung heroes, and those are the nurses. Yep. Because, to be honest, there wasn't actually much the doctors could realistically do. And mm-hmm. if you've ever been in need of health care... Doctors are cool. Nurses... They're like the frontline people. Are yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, historian Nancy Bristow, in her book American Pandemic, quotes one physician who described the heartbreaking experience. Quote, There wasn't much a doctor could do. The patient would be dead before you could get back to see him. He could diagnose you and give you some medicine, and the next day you're dead. Yeah. Which is, like, tragic. The main thing of visiting every day was to find out who was dead and then bury them. Like, that was reality. Right, which is horrifying. The most common treatment for a flu patient was bed rest, pain relief, isolation, and plenty of warmth, all of which was essentially palliative 
care. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, good luck. Right. But it was administered by the incredibly brave nurses who took care of their patients at great personal risk to themselves. And I feel that way also about those in COVID. Agreed. The nurses would keep the patient hydrated, fed, ventilate the room, and make sure it was warm enough and administer whatever remedies the doctor had recommended. Along the way, of course, the nurse risked being infected themselves. So Enormous personal risk, yeah. According to Josie Mabel Brown, a nurse at Great Lakes Naval Hospital during the pandemic, quote, we didn't have time to treat them. We didn't take temperatures. We didn't even have time to take blood pressure. We would give them a little hot whiskey toddy. That's about all we had time to do because there were so many. Yeah. To help address the medical needs of the military during wartime, the Army's medical department relied heavily on an organization called the Army Nurse Corps, and that was created in 1901. Out of the 98,000 registered nurses in the United States at this time, over 20,000 were serving in the military, and 9,000 of those were serving overseas in the military. Most of the 21,480 nurses who would volunteer to serve in World War I signed up through the American Red Cross. Mm-hmm. The military and the Red Cross, um, there's no other way to say this. There are all these inspiring stories of nurses, but at the time, the American Red Cross was completely refusing uh, to accept black nurses despite Uh, consistent advocacy from black nursing organizations. They finally reversed that decision in May of 1918 when they began this massive recruitment campaign that they titled A Stern Task for Stern Women. And one month later, they accepted the first handful of 18 black nurses, basically just in time for them to start taking care of the scores of people who would soon fall ill from the Spanish flu. Hundreds of active duty and civilian nurses died as the result of contracting the flu during the pandemic. I read one story about a nurse who was herself literally dying of pneumonia, and she was so committed to taking care of her patients that she insisted on being propped up against a wall to continue helping. One nurse wrote, It was a most horrible and yet most beautiful experience. The nurses rendered as noble a service as any soldier in battle. 100%. And that just gave me chills. 100%. Absolutely. (laughs) Although their contributions on the front lines of the 1918 pandemic have largely been ignored by the history books, we want to honor the legacy of these brave nurses by sharing their stories and reminding the world of how much they did when no one else could. And also, uh, like extra shiny star shout out to the black nurses who continued to want to serve despite their country and these organizations being determined to keep them out of that space. Yep. A hundred percent. I, I can't imagine basically fighting to put yourself at that risk and being told no. Yeah. And that's what we know about the 1918 flu pandemic. If you have a recommendation for something we should cover, please send us a DM at Malpractice Podcast on Instagram or an email, malpracticepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. If you get a chance to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you'd like to listen, I swear we actually read your reviews. We love them. We love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to do that. And also, don't forget, Malpractice, malpractice makes, makes perfect. perfect. Bye. Bye-bye.